Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Bielis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. On today's episode of the Journey Women Podcast, I'm chatting with Dr. Michael Haken about church history. Dr. Haken's the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies. Y'all, he did such a great job engaging a somewhat daunting topic in a really relatable and interesting way. Here's a little snippet on why church history is relevant for us as women in the church. And so using texts from the past as a usable past, as uh not only an item to be studied in its context, which it has to be, but also, does it say anything to me today? And of course it does. We have that long list of witnesses in Hebrews 11, and the writer Mm -hmm. of Hebrews expected his readers to be encouraged and challenged and rebuked by the faith of those who've gone before. And likewise with, we can do the same. And so, you know, that there is a great line of women who are witnesses We spent some time diving into the line of great women that Dr. Haken mentioned, and he left us with some sincere encouragement that God can use us in our normalcy for His glory right wherever He has us today. Now, let's get after some church history, y'all. Here's Dr. Michael Haken. Dr. Haken, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I am so excited to get to have you as a guest on the show today. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, I've told you this before, but Tony Ranke, who was another Journey Women guest, we talked about um, wisely navigating smartphone use. He suggested that we reach out to you on the topic of church history. And of course, I totally trust Tony's guidance, but I had to text a few of my buddies who have been to Southern Seminary, and I just want to tell the listeners what they said in response to me asking whether or not I should have you come on the show. One of them said, he is the best lecturer I may have ever listened to. <laughs> and another one of them said he is one of the best and he would be a great guest to have on the podcast to chat about women in the context of like church history. All that to say, I could not be more excited to get to share you with the Journey Women listeners. I'd love for them to get to hear a little bit more about who you are, what you do, and how you became personally passionate about church history. Well, I'm... Um currently the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I've been uh, here full-time since 2007. And uh, before that, starting in 2002, I was part-time or adjunct. I've always had a love of history, and when I was converted, I sensed a call to vocational ministry, didn't think of anything academic, but wrestled with being converted in a Baptist context Mm -hmm. because Baptists, at least the church I went to, had little interest or knowledge of their past. And my pastor wisely suggested I go to Wycliffe College, which was an evangelical Anglican school attached to the University of Toronto. And that was a fabulous experience. And it was there that I realized that I could be a Christian historian and went on, got my PhD taught for a number of years in Toronto at the uh, Central Baptist Seminary, and then that merged with another school to become Heritage Theological Seminary, uh, where I still do a bit of teaching uh, part-time, but I taught there full-time through the 90s, and then uh, the Lord led me to, to Southern. 
That's so wonderful. Well, you and I have this in common. I actually grew up in a Baptist context, but I had a really similar experience where we never really talked about the history of the church other than obviously what you read in scripture, in Acts and the epistles and things like that. And so I didn't really know very much at all, still don't to this day, as you know. (laughs) So I've become very interested in it. And yet I also find it hard to find resources that are accessible for someone who's in my life season as a mom who's 30 almost 31 years old with a two and a four-year-old that don't just like put me to sleep because I'm so sleep deprived Dr. Haken. (laughs) (laughs) So why is church history a relevant topic for every believer not just seminary students and pastors and I wanted to bring you on and ask you this type of question and to kind of exhaust this topic with you who are you know you're clearly you're an expert in this area, and, and, and to talk about it in a way that's hopefully um, relevant for the listener, which, which our listener demographic, again, is like ages 22 to 34, mostly probably women who are much like me that don't really have a whole lot of exposure to church history unless they went to like a Bible college or to seminary themselves. So why is church history a relevant topic for all of us, not just like theologians and academics like we would traditionally kind of expect? An initial uh, kind of stab at answering that question is the fact that uh, the scriptures contain an enormous number of uh, admonitions uh, that are boiled down to one word, remember. Yes. And um, that that word is used uh, repeatedly throughout scripture. And uh, God calls his people to remember the past. Obviously, in terms of the scriptures, it's got Mm -hmm. to do with uh, scriptural history. So Jesus tells his his disciples, remember Lot's wife. Uh, Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, were to remember those who preached to you the word of God. And so obviously the Bible from the biblical, kind of a biblical worldview, it takes history very seriously. Its history is something that needs to be remembered. And it's not just the, the leaders who need to remember it, but God's people as a whole need to remember The challenge, obviously, is once you move outside the scriptures, we don't have a divine commentary on the history of the church as to exactly what was going on. But on the other hand, we have obviously biblical principles in the scriptures that can help us understand when we look at various events in church history, some of them line up, some of them miss the mark very widely. And so those that line up with the biblical principles that kind of exalt the God of the scriptures, are things that we need to remember. So we need to remember the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to remember the Great Awakening uh, or the evangelical revivals of the 18th century uh, and so on. Um, Also, I think it's very important for us to recognize that we enter the scene of history, not of our own accord. Uh, You have a baby that is about to be born. That baby didn't choose to be born Mm -hmm. at this point in time. That choice was made by others, and ultimately God, and likewise with us. And we enter into a stream of history. We, we can call it tradition, which I think is a very good term. Um, although in evangelical circles, tradition is a bad term. That creates problems for us. But we enter into the stream of history as heirs of Uh, institutions and places and traditions. We're expected by God to pass the best of those on, which contain the gospel. So it's helpful to know where we've come from. 
if we refuse to do this, then we're really imitating the world, especially the world in which we live, which is very, although it might be interested in history as a vehicle of entertainment, it's not interested in history as a vehicle of wisdom and mm. learning. So if we fail as Christians to, to remember the past, we're really uh, revealing a worldliness which is akin to our culture. We learn from the past. The past is a vehicle that helps us grow in certain graces, for instance, humility. The challenge of the, the past is to realize that we have, been, we have received much. Jesus said this at one point. Others labored, and you've entered into their labor. Mm-hmm. Um, I still remember very vividly, I was, uh, the ch- Baptist church I was a member, first a member of was Stanley Avenue Baptist in Hamilton, Ontario. And in uh, 1989, they uh, celebrated their centenary. And I was asked if I would write a small book on the centenary as a historian. And um, there was a woman in the church. Her name was Lottie Inrig. She's with the Lord now, I believe. Mm. And Lottie was in her late 80s. I was a young man in my early 30s. And um, I never heard her say anything. She didn't seem at all important to me. She was there week by week, um, but didn't seem to be an active participant in the life of the church. But when I was going through the minutes back in the 1920s, there was a huge theological controversy in Ontario among Baptists, uh, which is basically a fight over liberal theology. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in 1926, Lottie and Rigg moved, she stood up in a business meeting and moved that the church cut off the financing of the seminary uh, uh, which was then uh, the McMaster uh, Baptist College at McMaster University, until they come back to their senses and teach uh, biblical theology. And I, I, it suddenly occurred to me that here, I, here was I. I had come into a church, which was a, a lighthouse for the gospel in that part of the city where I was living. I didn't plant that church. I had done nothing to foster it. But here was a woman who had for 60 years being seated in that church week after week after week, had taken a key part in its dealings and doings in the 1920s and probably other years. Um, I didn't see her that way and how wrong I was. And Lottie Inrig's name is not going to be recorded in history books, but in God's perspective on history, uh, she has a place and that place needs to be remembered. So uh, history teaches us humility. Um, History also teaches us, um, it challenges some of our preconceptions. The, it's been said that the past is a, far, a foreign country. They do things differently there. And one of the great things about history is it confronts us with people that we believe share the, the same beliefs as we do, but then you suddenly hit something that, oh, they believe that. How could they believe that? And it helps you to realize as you got to investigate, why did they believe that? And how did they justify believing that? Maybe there are things that I believe that are equally odd, but I take them for granted. So uh, history has a variety of things. It is critical, though, that every, every Christian have some awareness of uh, where we've come from and uh, how you uh, fit into that stream of, of history. Can you also touch on how our location, how as you know, the predominant listenership is all here in the U.S. and how that 
impacts maybe our lack of like thoughtfulness when it comes to the past? Yeah, I think uh, growing up in North America or being in North America at this juncture of time is, is problematic for anyone who takes, wants to take history seriously. We live in cities that are overwhelmingly modern. Buildings are knocked down. The dominant features of our cities are skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. uh, the architecture is very coordinated to the present. Some architects are trying to anticipate what will be appealing architecture 20 years from now, so future-oriented. If you grew up in, in England, as I did, you know, I used to pass on the way to school a medieval, the ruins of a medieval tower. Only 15 minutes from where I lived was Warwick Castle, wow. built one of the great castles of the medieval world that still exists in England, uh, built in the mid and the, and the high Middle Ages. Uh, just a remarkable achievement. And just it goes on and on and on. I've been to York, for example, which has really been out three hours from where I grew up in Coventry, where you could actually touch a wall that before which the legions of uh, Constantine in 306 declared him emperor of the West. Wow. And because uh, that was part of the, that wall was part, it's in central New York. It was part mm -hmm. of the uh, legionary fortress. Um, and so there are, constant reminders to you in places like Europe and other parts of the world that have those sort of ruins that we don't have here in North America. And then also because of the dominance of technology here, um, yes. technology is designed to wear out, to become obsolete. For instance, you know, uh, the first computer I ever remember, nobody uses those today at all, at least Mo virtually nobody mm -hmm. and we we don't expect to but what we've done is we've taken a, the wisdom from our technology and we've applied it to all of life so because Jonathan Edwards can't help fix my computer glitches well he's got nothing to say to me no 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 he he, he just can't he, he he's just not up to speed on my technology but on the other areas of life you know how to raise children how to live a life that honors God uh, how to face death his writings are of enormous value. Yes. So growing up in North America is a problem for us. And then evangelicals, as I mentioned earlier, have a problem with tradition. Tradition is against the gospel. That's probably a product of the 19th century when you have uh, the democratization of evangelicalism in, in North America, um, where there is a rejection of a learned ministry and... Um, given the kind of model of and Andy Jackson, uh, you know, this backwoodsman, if he could become the president of the United States, well, anybody could, you know. And so the idea that there is a man standing at the front of the church who has wisdom that I need, he needs to impart to as well. Hey, my, my, my view of, of God and scripture is just as good as his. So that sort of uh, rejection of mm -hmm. learned ministry and rejection of the way in which there are those in our midst who are set apart to secure the transmission of the faith and tradition, that also has played a key role in our lack of interest in history. You know, as a millennial, I'm just thinking about how much time I personally spend on my own social media platforms and things like that. I mean, it's really, like at its heart, just so much navel-gazing. And I just feel like I've spent so little of uh, the time in which I have been growing in my relationship with the Lord, like looking at not just like, what does the truth mean for 
me today, but also like, what did it mean for people in times past, you know? And so I just, I don't know, I feel like I've been missing a lot and it's a very, I'm speaking personally, like I'm realizing how egocentric I have been in my approach to my faith, not just like as I come to the word, which I've had that realization recently where it's like, oh, you know, I, I don't just need to come to the word asking like, what does it say for me? But like, who, who is God and what does it say about who God is? And I'm kind of realizing that that's similar when you approach like, you know, our heritage and our lineage of believers that has existed for years. So for those who are like me, who really feel like they know nothing, who feel like they you know, have very little context for this conversation. I'm kind of asking an impossible question, (laughs) but since you are the expert, can you offer like a high flying overview of church history? Just kind of briefly summarize maybe 2000 years. Yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, It's important that you have some understanding of where I'm coming from as a historian. Mm -hmm. Um, Historians kind of fall into maybe three categories and I, they, and I remember reading this being uh, this uh, this kind of division of types of historians and likening of historians to builders. So there are some historians who are like those who dig foundations. They love getting down into the dirt, scooping out area that's going to be uh, where the building's going to be built. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there are those uh, historians who uh, like to take the bricks that will eventually be used in the building and they're bricklayers and uh, I may I, I come by that honestly. Both my grandfather and my one of my uncles were bricklayers. Uh, two of my uncles, and um, then uh, thirdly, there are those uh, historians who are like the architect. Uh, so the person who has got the big picture. The first two are really into detail, and uh, when I began as a historian, that's the way I was trained. Uh, that's been a dominant feature, but. Given the fact that you have to teach people who don't have any uh, knowledge often of the area you're teaching, you're going to have to give the big picture. And so I've come to the the latter somewhat, uh, maybe kicking and screaming, uh, but it's very, very important. So just so you know that uh, my first instinct is not to give the big picture. My first right. instinct is to burrow down deep into uh, an area. Anyway, so the big picture. Um The uh, New Testament period uh, records the ministry of our Lord and the first disciples that are formed into the church at Jerusalem after Pentecost and the spread of the gospel into the Mediterranean world. The New Testament books take us up to maybe 90s AD, uh, by which time there probably were maybe 15, 20,000 believers max. By that point in time, Christianity had become illegal in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire basically uh, was the dominant political institution which controlled about one-fifth of the world's population. It's the major matrix for the development of the early church. The um, church did grow beyond the empire, and that's sometimes a forgotten story. And the globalization of the gospel in recent centuries has forced us to remember that story. So the gospel going to what is now Ethiopia, um, Iran, India. Um, But the major center of the gospel in terms of expansion was from the, what we call the Middle East, Jerusalem, and uh, Israel going west to the areas of the Mediterranean basin. And in the mid-60s, Christianity ran into 
uh, persecution from the Roman state. Hitherto, that the Roman state had not been a major persecutor. The synagogue had. Uh, but Christianity is ruled illegal. And from 64 AD to 312 AD, to be a Christian in the Roman Empire was to commit a crime. Hmm. And thus, it was against that background of significant, never continuous, sometimes empire-wide persecution, something you always had to reckon with when, you, if a, when a person became a, Christ, a Christian. They had to reckon with the possibility of dying as a martyr. Um, it's in that world that Christianity flourishes in its early centuries. From a few thousand, by 312, when Christianity is, 313, when Christianity is declared a legal religion uh, through the Edict of Milan, there's probably 7 million believers. And those believers have become believers through small group Bible studies, one-on-one, heads of households sharing their faith, neighbors sharing their faith, people seeing martyrs die. There's no, there's no open-air evangelism. Uh, we're misled, I think, sometimes by the book of Acts. We think, oh, yeah, this is the norm. With Paul preaching out in the open air, that that was not the norm. The uh, those early centuries are very important. They lay foundations like the church as a church of martyrs, and the martyr as a very significant gift that God gives to the church. They lay foundations for the way we speak about God. You mentioned talking about God earlier. The grammar that we have, the fact that our God has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture as uh, one God yet three persons. Uh, That's all hammered out in the 4th century. Uh, The union of humanity and deity in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, two natures, yet one person. All of that is is kind of hammered out in those early centuries and lays a foundation for theology proper and Christology. With the fall of the Roman Empire in Western Western Europe, which takes place in the 5th century, uh, there is a loss of biblical literacy, significant loss. People who could read and write in the Roman world mm-hmm. would have probably been 10 to 12 percent. It's not a lot, but it's a literate world. The post-Roman world in Western Europe is not a literate world. Maybe less than one percent could read and write. Wow, for centuries. Uh, those people are located in usually monasteries. And uh, so there is this long period. Between roughly 500 and uh, the 900s, when Europe is in shambles in many ways, there are attempts to recover uh, literacy and to build, rebuild the Christianization of that world. The Celtic Church engages in this. There's the Carolingian Church during the 800s. And then you have the Vikings, though, who uh, really plunge Europe into a dark ages between 850 and 950. The Vikings, most of them embraced Christianity around the year 1000, uh, at least a form of Christianity. And um, you then get what we call the High Middle Ages, the uh, emergence of universities. The oldest universities in Europe are planted at this time. Heidelberg in the 12th century, uh, Oxford, there's Sorbonne and Paris. Uh, there's a recovery of learning, which we call the Renaissance. And uh, that all is necessary prelude to the recovery of the gospel, because during this long period of biblical literacy, all kinds of things came into the church. Um, the, what really amounts to the worship of the relics, the parts, mm-hmm. the body parts of the saints, 
which can do, according to medieval men and women, enormously powerful things. The papacy, which um, is problematic because it's a one-man rule of the church, who the Pope claiming to be the voice of Christ. Theological drift, so that you have a world in which it's um, the, the whole idea of grace as the foundation of our salvation is compromised. And uh, so there's a necessity of the recovery of the gospel. There are those who seek to recover it during the Middle Ages, but that recovery does not become solid and permanent until the Reformation of the 16th century with men like Luther, Calvin, mm-hmm. Amner, etc. They lay foundations for various mature Christian movements in the ninth, uh, 17th century, like the Puritans in England, what's called the Further Reformation, or the Nadra Reformati in Holland, uh, the Pietists in Germany. And it's out of those contexts that you get the globalization of the gospel. People like uh, August Franca in Halle in Germany, uh, becoming convinced of the necessity of sending missionaries to places like India. Uh, the Moravians in the 1720s who uh, send missionaries out to not only other parts of Europe, but Muslim North Africa, the Caribbean, Sri Lanka, the first, pe- first people of Native Americans in, in uh, America, uh, Greenland. And then in the English-speaking world, uh, the Baptists with William Carey mm-hmm. at the end of the 18th century. That globalization continues through the 19th century. That period, it becomes, again, uh, confused. It becomes confused at the end of the 19th century because many of the nations that are sending missionaries are also engaged in widespread imperialism. And so it's not always clear whether the missionaries who are sent out are sent as agents of the church or agents of Western culture. And sometimes they're both. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Livingston, I think, is a good case in point. Um, it's not always clear what he is. Is he a missionary? Is he an explorer? Is he taking British values to Central Africa? Um, I have a photograph of four Zulu uh, missionaries around the 1880s. And uh, if you just looked at their clothing, they look like typical Victorian men out for a stroll uh, down um, one of the major streets in London. They've got three-piece suits. They've got bowler hats. I've got no idea what the Zulus who saw them coming into their villages thought. Hmm. Uh, Did they think to become a Christian meant the embrace of every facet of British culture? And uh, regretfully, uh, there is an arrogance that starts to emerge in the late 19th century where the uh, Europeans feel, and Americans feel, that they've been given a burden for the education of the rest of the world, and the rest of the world has to embrace their culture. And so that sometimes has been a problem with uh, the expansion of the gospel. But the last hundred years has seen this massive globalization to the point that now the two-thirds world, Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, India, uh, the Far East, China, Korea, South Korea, especially Latin America, have seen this absolute explosion of gospel churches. Uh, Many of them obviously are not as well taught as they should be. Uh, But at the same time, there's been this recession, especially in Europe. Uh, Canada has experienced it. America has not to as great as an extent. But uh, we certainly face challenges in the coming coming decades. I can totally see that. You know, 
I'm so appreciative of that overview, Dr. Haken. That was tremendous. <laughs> but, you know, as I'm trying to learn church history for myself and looking at resources and things like that, I find a lot of things like, here's why you should, and here's why you should teach your kids about it. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, what do you do if you're like me and you don't really know what church history is? <laughs> and so it's such a helpful, it, it's such a helpful thing to have the context if we were going to zoom in, like you said, and maybe take things a bit more brick by brick, are there some key elements of church history, like over that span of 2000 years that you just so beautifully laid out that we would do well to understand? Yeah, I think there are probably key centuries. Obviously, the first century is a key century with the expansion of the church, the foundations that are laid, which we have in scripture. Uh, the fourth century is a key century. Uh, because there we get the final battles really regarding the, mm-hmm. the nature of final battles in terms of laying out the grammar for God and laying out a grammar for thinking about Christ. It's also in the fourth, fifth centuries that we get uh, the writings of Augustine, who is so important for the West. Every professing Christian in the West who's grown up in the West, in Western churches, is an Augustinian to some degree. Um, he's just enormously influential. And uh, knowing Augustine uh, is very, very important. And it's also in the fourth century, like it or not, uh, that the, fourth, the, the early church comes up with an answer to the question, what does it mean to be a Christian now in a culture that claims it's Christian? Right. With the embrace of Christianity by the Roman emperors, they were now enforcing uh, Christianity mm-hmm. by the end of the fourth century as the only legal religion. Uh, paganism was pres- prescribed. And so what does it mean to be a Christian in that world? And the answer is monasticism. And you find men and women committing themselves to lives of uh, celibacy, simplicity, and obedience to uh, uh, an abbot or an abbess, um, somebody who is a mature Christian uh, who can be a mentor to you. Those are probably not areas that we think about a lot. Right. But for the next thousand years, monasticism, is the spirituality of the church. Yeah, I was reading about that actually in your book, which I am currently going through the chapter on Margaret Baxter. And you mentioned that even was Augustine, correct? Like he maintained some of that ideology that it's more spiritual um, to remain celibate than to be married. Yep. So we've got, yeah, so that those are certain, the fourth century is a key century. The 16th century, I think is key because of the recovery of the gospel and especially for evangelical Protestants the five solars of the Reformation, Uh uh, the life and achievements of Luther, Calvin, Cramner. These are all certainly things that we should know in some depth. I think the 18th century, now there'll be friends of mine who'd say, oh, we have to know the 17th, the Puritans. Uh, The Puritans are very important for Anglophone Christianity because they, they really are the kind of radical Christians of their day. Uh, again, they're, se- they're seeking also to answer that question. What does it mean to be a Christian mm-hmm. in a society that claims to be Christian? And um, they want to bring the gospel to bear in every sphere of life. Um, I think the 18th century is critical because of the revivals. So somebody like Jonathan Edwards is an, import- is an enormously important theologian to be ranked alongside Augustine because of his insights into human psychology, his, uh, his thinking and reflection and experience of a revival, and his incredible view of God. Mm. Um, those are just three reasons why 
somebody like Edwards needs to mm-hmm. be uh, uh, thought about significantly. And in the 18th century, also you get the globalization of the gospel, beginning with the missionary movement associated with Andrew Fuller and William Carey, Fuller being the kind of theological brains behind Carey. That also is very, very important in light of the globalization that's taken place in the last 2,000 years. Wow. So throughout all of the history that we're talking about, the history of the church, what has been and what remains the most crucial and critical element in the life of the church? That's a challenging question. I, I think probably the, the, the answer would be the, the, the gift of the Spirit. Uh-huh. Um, I think if you, when you go through the book of Acts, you have a number of accounts, uh, beginning with Pentecost, but then the uh, Samaritan experience, uh, the uh, account about Cornelius, and then the Ephesian disciples in which you have uh, a number of things mentioned, the preaching of the word, the response in faith, baptism. But the one constant that is there is the spirit. Things come in different orders, but the constant that it comes through all those, those, those different accounts is the, the gift of the spirit. It was Edwards who argued that um, the great thing for which our Lord suffered, um, if it can indeed be called a thing, was the, that the spirit be given to his people. And um, Edwards took very seriously that the ascended Christ that is depicted in the speech of Peter in uh, Acts 2, that the great thing that Peter emphasizes is the outpouring of the Spirit that is a gift of the ascended Christ. Without the Spirit, we can do nothing. That's a very, very important insight that's solidly biblical. It's picked up again by Augustine. Wherever Augustine is a very uh, revered teacher in the medieval period, you find a de- significant degree of spiritual health. So you people got people like Gottschalk in the Carolingian world, Bede in the Anglo-Saxon world in the 700s, um, Bernard of Clairvaux in uh, the world of Cluniac monasticism, um, John Wycliffe, and then obviously all the reformers are Augustinian. And uh, so that vein of Augustinianism that kind of runs through the Middle Ages mm-hmm. that emphasizes the, the necessity of grace, the gift of the Spirit. Uh, and then obviously when you move into the 18th century, the Puritans are also there. They're, they, they long for revival. They didn't see it. The 18th century saw it. That's why I think the 18th century is such an important era for us because our, our great need, I think, in North America today is revival. How does growing in our understanding of all of this just having like a context and a framework for it, how does it impact the way in which we actually go about the way that we do church here and, and our local church membership, our involvement, all of those things? Again, I think that goes back to the question you asked me right at the beginning is why we should know church history. And I think mm-hmm. church history then can inform and help us evaluate things that we take for granted as normative. Let me take one area. I was going to to talk a little bit about worship, but I think the whole brouhaha that's going on in the social justice stuff Mm -hmm. um, and the the accusation that evangelicals who are concerned about social justice are trying to import cultural Marxism into our churches, that's a failure to understand the way in which our forebears, men like uh, John Wesley, William Wilberforce, even Jonathan Edwards himself, Mm were very strongly committed to two things. One is the purity of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, Mm -hmm. and the necessity of the new birth. And at the same time, that that those who are newborn in Christ, those who are born again in Christ, that that those those lives would demonstrate 
a significant fruit that is borne out in activism, in social good. So Edwards, for instance, says one of the reasons why he knew that the revival in Northampton that took place in 1734-35 was genuine was because many of those in the town who had wealth were now concerned for the poor. Mm. The program to debate the end of the slave trade, the, the ending of the slave trade in Britain through the, the energy of William Wilberforce, mm-hmm. well, that, that, it was evangelicals who ended the slave trade in the British Isles. There, there was a revival, and then out of the revival came one of the key fruits was all of this social activism. The end of the slave trade, the formation of the what's called the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Many of these figures, John Newton, William Cooper, Augustus Toplady, William Wilberforce, were deeply concerned that if you're a Christian, you not only have a care for your fellow man, but you also have a care for the other creatures that God has placed in this world Mm -hmm. and animals. The formation of societies to take care of widows, war widows, the the societies for um, uh, strangers, uh, ending things like prostitution, helping women to get mm-hmm. out of prostitution. Yeah, so there's, you know, Josephine Butler during the Victorian period, just a remarkable example of a woman who devoted her life basically because she was a Christian to helping women in London get out of the sex trade. Wow, how that's tremendous. Are there some are there other key women who have had an impact on church history, like in this capacity, who have really like, kind of gotten their hands dirty, like you're describing, and, and been very involved. I know it's, it's hard because women are like the minority context, so I, I imagine it's difficult because there's probably, is there not a lot of literature out there to like offer us like a picture for that? Or what is that, what is that like? Well, I think one of the challenges for, for women in terms of models is not because there's not the literature, because there is, but because up until recently, the, the, main, uh, the main storytellers, historians, Right. Men. And usually the way the story was told, and I remember this very vividly um, in the ninth, when I took my first course in church history overview, uh-huh. 1974-75, 20 years old. And um, a number of years later, as I began to realize there was a major lacuna in that story as it was told to me, I had come away with the names of all kinds of men. You know, mm-hmm. Irenaeus, Anselm, sorry, Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, mm-hmm. Luther, Calvin, Edwards, no women. I know. I mean, I feel the same way <laughs> until, and, until coming uh, across your book and really, you know, a few other resources. I really, I, I feel the same exact way. And I think, I think, as I say, part of it has been the problem of historians. And one of the reasons why the feminist movement has been a challenge for our culture, mm-hmm. but it's also been from my point of view, a blessing because it has forced historians like myself to grapple with the fact that the story that we have told has been so male oriented. Right. I mean, in a, in a, in a typical local church, this is Baptist, but I suspect the same is true of many churches. 60% will be women, 40% men. Hmm. The only time those percentages change is during times of revival. That's so and interesting. So faith has been handed on. People like Lottie Enrich, who I mentioned earlier, ah. by, by these faithful women whose story has never been told. Right. In many cases, those stories are hidden from us now. But in many cases, all we have to do is do the digging as historians. Hmm. 
Yeah. And so there are women, uh, people like Anne Dutton, who wrote somewhere between 50 and 60 books in the 18th century, wrote regularly to leaders of revival like George Whitfield, John Wesley, Philip Doddridge, Howell Harris, sending her books to them, uh, in some points criticizing them. Uh, she criticized John Wesley because of his doctrine of perfection uh, and uh, published two books gently reproving him uh, to the point that he got so frustrated at her, he eventually told her, I, I don't believe you're a believer. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd, you'd see the truth of what I'm saying. Of course, there are many who didn't see what he was saying is true. But um, <laughs> So you've got women like that. You've got women like Esther Edwards Burr, um, her diary that she wrote between 1754 to 1757, lay basically unused until 1978. It was in in, uh, Yale University in the Beinecke Library, and it was not till that year that two women historians decided to edit and publish it. Wow. But what you've got here is the diary of a woman who's trying to be a faithful Christian, again, in a Christian society, Puritan New England, and she's a very busy housewife. Her father uh, was Jonathan Edwards. Her husband was Aaron Burr Sr. She is, and Aaron Burr are the parents of Aaron Burr Jr., the kind of infamous third president, vice president of the United States. And it's a fabulous diary because we not only have very rich insights into um, her longing for revival. There is a revival that takes place in the college of New Jersey where her husband is the president, which becomes Princeton. But also we, we see her very human side. You know, Saturday, she says one, one day, one time, I hate Saturdays. It's busy, busy, busy. And she hates Saturdays because she had to do all the ironing and uh, getting all the meals ready for the following day. Aaron Burr was a very gregarious man. He'd invariably bring over boatloads of friends for lunch. And she was expected, obviously, to cook for them all. And she had two little kids. But it's a very human diary. She, she goes to Stockbridge in 1756, and the French and Indian War is broken out. And the French are utilizing the Iroquois to uh, terrorize the frontier. Northampton, uh, Stockbridge is a palisaded town. She's convinced, though, that she's going to be butchered in her sleep. She says, I, I'm, I'm quite willing to die for the glory of God, but I don't want to be butchered in my sleep. So she's supposed to go there for a couple of months. She, she can't take it after three or four weeks and yes. uh, hi, uh, you know, highlights it back to, to, uh, to New Jersey where she's safe. So what, what's great about it is you suddenly realize these people struggled with their faith. Yes, it's so normalizing. I feel so much better about the fact that I have to keep my car keys by my bed when my husband's away for training in the military so that I can hit the alarm button just in case somebody tries to barge through the door. (laughs) So how can you see knowing these stories bolstering the faith of our listeners, women who are listening that are in college, uh, single women, women who are mothers, young professionals, like how can knowing more about church history and even the women that you've mentioned bolster our faith? Well, I, as I said, I mean, somebody like Esther Edwards Burr, um, just getting her diary and using it as a meditative tool, just kind of reading portions of it, and then asking questions that you might ask of Scripture. What, what is she, how is what I've just read teach us about how she experienced God, and how can that help me? Um, how did she see her faith playing out? And so using texts from the past 
as a usable past, not only an item to be studied in its context, which it has to be, but also does it say anything to me today? And of course it does. We have that long list of witnesses in Hebrews 11, and the writer mm-hmm. of Hebrews expected his readers to be encouraged and challenged and rebuked by the faith of those who've gone before. And likewise, with we can do the same. And so, you know, that there is a great line of women who are witnesses, you know, going back to Perpetua, who died at uh, 22 in a in the Roman arena in Carthage, she had just given birth to a little baby and her family gave her a choice. Sacrifice to the gods, her father gave her a choice, and preserve your life for your baby's sake and for our honor or be foolish and throw the whole thing away. And well, in the eyes of this world, she was foolish and she never saw her baby grow up. She was martyred. Uh, So Perpetua and Monica, the mother of, of Augustine, an illiterate woman who prayed fervently that God would save her son, and waited 32 years, had to wait 32 years before that error was answered. Um, Macrina, who had an enormous impact upon two of the key figures who crafted the grammar that I was speaking about earlier for the theology of God, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa. I mean, those, those men are giants. Well, Basil was one to faith in Christ by his sister, Macrina. Wow. And uh, it was Macrina who challenged Gregory as well. Or as you move into the, um, the Middle Ages, you have people like Julian of Norwich or uh, in the uh, Reformation period, Idelette de Beur, the wife of, of Calvin. Calvin could say that God had given him in his wife such a companion that if he had been called to suffer by, by death for the gospel, she had willingly have gone with him. Uh, Brilliana Harley, uh, a woman, a Puritan woman, writing letters to her son. We have tons of them. Uh, wanting him to come to faith in Christ and grow in Christ. Uh, he was away at University of Oxford. Uh, then you come to, you know, Anne Dutton, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Anne Steele, the great hymn writer, Phyllis Wheatley, African-American poetess, probably the greatest African-American poetess of the 18th, 19th century. Selena Hastings, who spent her fortune for the sake of the gospel in the 18th century. Jo- Josephine Butler, who I mentioned earlier. Amy Carmichael, the great missionary woman. Uh, to India, uh, in more recent days, Elizabeth Elliot, mm-hmm. um, Henrietta Mears, who had a Bible study in California in which Bill Bright was converted. So there's just a long line of witnesses. And young women uh, that you're talking about, you know, who are millennials or, you know, in the in their early 30s with, with children, uh, struggling, you know, day by day. Th- these are fabulous resources. And there are, there are, thankfully, there are books now being written about numbers of these women. You have um, Karen Swallow Pryor's great little work on, um, it's not little, but a great work on uh, Hannah Moore, who was a reformer in England, uh, One to Faith in Christ by John Newton. Uh, Ray Rhodes' new biography of Su- Susie Spurgeon. Yes. Uh, so C.H. Spurgeon's uh, wife. So thankfully, there are resources now. Uh, Rebecca Van Dudevoort, who's written a nice little book published by Reformation Heritage Books on a number of women of the Reformation period. And then the one that I've also written, Eight Women of Faith. So, Yes, I'm so thankful for your work, Dr. Haken. And I would love for the listeners just to get to hear from you. Are there any other resources that you would recommend for somebody who wants to develop their understanding of church history, keeping in mind that we may need a little bit of a church history for dummies? If, there, if anybody, <laughs> I'm speaking for myself. This is a selfish question. <laughs> yeah, there is a there. There are a number of one volume 
uh, overviews of church history. There's a really nice one. Uh, it's out of print now, but you can probably get copies easily on Amazon or eBay or whatever. Uh, Jeremy Jackson, uh, No Other Foundation. And in about 250 pages, he does 2,000 years of church history. That's awesome. And I'm going to buy it. It's good. It's, it's not only informative, but it's also inspiring. He, he tries to, to raise questions that church history brings to bear. Uh, about our faith and how to live out that faith. Um, uh, there's three books I did. Uh, it's a, called The Mentor Series, published by Joshua Press, uh, looking at the early church uh, authors as mentors, and then uh, the Reformers and Puritans, and then the 18th century uh, figures. Wonderful. Uh, um, so there are a number of resources out there increasingly. There's a beautiful little series published uh, by Reformation Heritage Books, and they're for children uh, by Simonetta Carr called Christian Biographies for Young Readers. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And they are absolutely gorgeous. Oh, I'm so excited. What age would you say they're for? Are they for elementary or? Uh, eight to 10 year olds. Okay. Wonderful. Maybe. And if the, if the parent can read, because every page has got a picture, the parent can read them maybe even a bit younger. One oh. of the challenges though for teaching children uh, history mm-hmm. Not until about seven or eight or nine that children start to grasp past, present, future. Mm, that's helpful. I have a four-year-old and she's constantly wondering if today is tomorrow. And once it's tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow is today. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not until the, and you need, you need some, the child needs some idea of the passage of time uh, to right. be able to think about history. But those, those books by Simonetta Carr, they are brilliant. She's, she's a very gifted writer. Every book she does, uh, and uh, she does, she's done people like Augustine, Anselm, Calvin, Edwards. She always contacts historians who know the person. Oh, how wonderful. So, so her writing is based on solid research. And then they are, the, the people that she has gotten as artists are just remarkable. Oh, so I well. strongly recommend those. And any parent, you know, a mother reading those, you're going to learn, you're going to learn church history. I was thinking that's where I'm going to start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually starting with your book and it is absolutely excellent. We'll be sure to link to it in the show notes and to put it on our resources page. I hope people are as excited about learning more as I am. I'm just so grateful for your contribution to the podcast in this capacity today. And we'd love to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level, Dr. Haken. One of the questions that I ask every guest, which is a bit girly, but hopefully you'll appease us, is what are three of your simple joys? Well, obviously one of them is history. Um, you know, uh, I love I love libraries. I love bookstores. Um, I'm quite happy, you know, when I go somewhere new to go to a bookstore for three, four, five, six hours. Oh, that's so Especially great. I got a coffee shop. Yes. Um, and uh, I love libraries. Uh, libraries are almost a spiritual experience for me. Yes. Bizarre, I know. But, well, aren't you um, sad about, I mean, the digital age, like I definitely utilize my Kindle, but I feel the same way. I mean, I tried to work at a bookstore when I was in college and it's, it's, it's got a special place in my heart, but I feel like bookstores are becoming more and more of a thing of the past, which is so sad because of Amazon and uh, technology. Well, actually, the, the very encouraging thing is I think the kind of uh, the low point for bookstores has been passed. They're, they're now 
there, there, there is a, every indication that independent bookstores are now on the upsurge. Oh, yay. That's encouraging. And, um, people are getting fed up with Kindle. You know, the thing dies on them. The, the whole <laughs> feel of Kindle or any of these kind of uh, platforms. Yes. It's just not, it's not a book. How offended would you be if I told you that I bought your book on Kindle? <laughs> I do I, plan I, to get it in hard copy. That was I, the fastest way I could get access. Yeah, I'm not offended at all. <laughs> so that's, that's one love. A second love is my family. I don't have hobbies per se. I don't. I don't have hobbies. If anything, if I have spare time, I, it's my family. And so um, I love going shopping with my wife. I know a lot of men don't. I just love that. It's because I'm with my wife. You just uh, won all the listeners in that one uh, statement. <laughs> <laughs> I love going to malls. Uh, I love watching movies that she likes. Oh. There is a bit of a limit. Uh, Jane Austen. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jane Austen. So we love right. those. Kind of He's in your book. Uh, she also loves these hokey B movies about Christmas. Oh, yes, yes. Hallmark. You know, that uh, Hallmark puts out. <laughs> I do draw the line at those. But um, I just, yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time when I've got free time with my wife, my family, my kids. Um, I just think uh, it's vital for fathers. You know, we hear this kind of adage, quality time, not it's quality time, not quantity time that matters. I, I'm not sure I bought by that. I, th I just think you need to give as much time as you can to mm. those who are family members, mm. especially in our world. And um, because when they hit their teens, the time that you're going to be able to give to them is going to be on their. <laughs> right. They're going to decide when they want that time. And so that's vital. So I, you know, when I go to Britain and I do so every year, a uh, couple of times, my daughter is in Vienna. We'll come over. We'll spend uh long weekend together and do bookstores, museums, cafes. So yeah, it's awesome. So. I love that so much. <laughs> I, I find myself like wanting to meet her. Just, I don't know. I told my husband about, you know, your history last night. And I said, this has got to be one of the most fascinating people that I've ever talked to. I don't know that I've talked to someone with such a diverse background. And so in some ways, I feel like every time I speak to someone who is, uh, has adult children, I find myself wanting to talk to their children as well. Mm -hmm. So she sounds absolutely lovely. All right. Do you have a third simple joy for us? Uh, I guess I, I'm separating there my wife and the, the children. So. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's so wonderful. You have two children, correct? Yeah, Nigel is uh, in law school and my daughter is married, living in Vienna, uh, oh. where she's working for, she did do a, uh, an MA, a second MA there. She did an MA in Latin and classics. She did an MSc, sorry, in international law and environmental technology, but her husband has a postdoc at the University of Vienna in engineering physics. She sounds like she takes after her father a little bit. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it has just been wonderful to get to hear about the impact of, you know, just the people, the church at large, like throughout the context of church history. Um, thank you for laying that out. And, and that being said, we would love to hear from you. Who is it that's had the greatest impact on your own personal journey with Jesus, Dr. Haken? In terms of church history figures, I mean, it, it, there's a number, obviously, Augustine, uh, Basil of Caesarea, but probably the figure would be Andrew Fuller and Samuel Pierce, mm -hmm. uh, if I could give two. They're part of a circle of men around uh, William Carey, 
Uh, William Carey is the big name. You know, there's been about 80 biographies on Carey. There's been about three or four on Pierce, about this, maybe a bit more on Fuller. But the, without, without Fuller, Carey would never have gone to India. Fuller, right. Fuller crafted the theology of missions for that kind of inspired to, to many degrees, Carey. Um, uh, Fuller uh, funded him, uh, supported him. He was the secretary of the Baptist Missionary Society. Um, he wrote enormous numbers of quantities of letters on his behalf. And Samuel Pierce was just a very close friend um, and uh, inspirational model. He died at 33. He's really kind of the Jim Elliot of the, the late uh, 18th century, um, or Br- uh, David Brainerd or Robert Murray McShane, or to bring it home me more closely, maybe a Keith Green kind of figure. Just a radically committed Christian, uh, just a man of remarkable Remarkable love. Uh, when Andrew Fuller wrote his life, he, he summed up his life. He said he, the characteristic of, of any who knew him was just the holy love he had. One of the greatest privileges I've ever had was spending, I've probably spent maybe three, four weeks over the years, maybe more, uh, reading his actual letters to his wife. Uh, there's about 80 love letters he wrote to his wife that are in Oxford, and they are just remarkable. Oh, that's so wonderful. I uh, I was actually watching some of the videos that you've, you know, you have a ton of stuff online if, if anyone's interested in learning more from you. And uh, you were saying, I, I've done the same with Bonhoeffer's letters to Maria from Cell 92. Yep. And you, I, I remember watching a video in which you said one of my favorite little books, um, Life Together by Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Uh, something that you'd recommend to all believers. Is that correct? Did, am I oh, misquoting yes. you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I, I too, I, I just, I love learning from people in all of their complexities. And I'm just so thankful to have a whole host. I feel like I have a lifetime of material now <laughs> to be um, looking into. Thanks to you, Dr. Haken. So thank you so much for gifting us your time and joining us on the Journey Women podcast. It has truly been a blessing. My pleasure. Okay, are you guys like fired up about church history now? (laughs) Uh, We hope you are. I have been since talking with Dr. Haken. And if you made it this far, we want to let you know that we're giving away all the resources Dr. Haken mentioned and more over on Instagram this week. It's like my dream giveaway. Head over to at Journey Women Podcast on the gram and give us a follow for all the details on how to enter. You can also find all the information from this episode, including Dr. Haken's noteworthy quotes in the show notes on journeywomenpodcast.com. So you'll know this episode was edited by Chris Mann and the Podshaper team. Be sure to tune in next week so that you can hear from Christy Anyabwile on what to do when church gets hard. Hey, it's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. I can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week. Have a great week.